Hello and welcome to episode 30 of the Ideal Nutrition Podcast. Um, today we are going to be doing a Q&A episode, so it's the second one we've done. And the first question comes in from at Natalie Rollman on Instagram and she asks, what do you eat on a one week diet break? Whatever you want or should it be at maintenance? So Leah, what are your thoughts? My thoughts are, well, firstly, with my clients, I would typically put them on maintenance during a diet break because the point of a diet break is to break up a calorie deficit. So I don't really want to be going backwards and start gaining weight for that couple of weeks that you are like on a diet break or for the week you're on. Um, But at the same time, if it's just a week and you're planning your diet break around the time of like a holiday or something, I sometimes get clients to just not track or stick to a meal plan and and just literally eat what they want. So I think it depends on your situation and your goals. I agree. Like in the research, they usually do it under pretty controlled circumstances. They try to make sure it is exactly or as close as they can get to maintenance calories because that's what they're trying to study. They're trying to study it at maintenance calories. But in practice, it doesn't really matter. There's a lot of options. I usually aim for roughly maintenance. But a big thing we're trying to do is undo some of the restriction, mental burden, etc., that is associated with dieting. And if you miss the mark a little bit and go slightly over in calories, it probably doesn't matter that much, particularly if you get a lot more done while you're in the calorie deficit or if that's a longer phase or whatever, and it is just one week at higher calories. Yeah, and I do wonder if going into a slight calorie surplus does have maybe a bit of a quicker effect in terms of undoing some of that hunger. And I don't know, maybe there's a time and place for it. I think the only thing would be is if you're taking a diet break and you're eating whatever you want, not tracking, and then still in a deficit, then that's probably a problem. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and I, I, I would also caution going excessively far as well oh, in a yeah. surplus too. A cheat week, maybe not. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, at Holly Seville underscore dietitian asks, is getting below 8% body fat for males detrimental? Um, from my perspective, in a lot of cases it can be, but it's a pretty nuanced topic. Like what what would I consider to be the most like detrimental aspects is like little things like decreased testosterone, maybe some hormones like T3 and T4 could be altered, just general mood, fatigue, all these kind of things can happen. But there are certain things to consider in terms of like one, some people might just naturally be able to maintain a little bit below there a little bit more easily. And two, how did you get there is probably another kind of thing. Um, I saw a thing from Angus Bradley, shout out Angus Bradley, but like on Instagram, he, he put out something that was along the lines of like, yeah, bodybuilders always talk about how like being lean year round is really, really detrimental for performance. And he kind of pointed out how does like, there is a lot of athletes out there who will be below say 8% body fat or around 8% body fat year round. The only difference is that they didn't do a bodybuilder style cut where they go and lose say half a kilo or more per week for 10 to 20 weeks on relatively low activity outside of lifting. And like you could make an argument that what if somebody was sitting 10% body fat year round and then slowly dipped under 8%, it's probably a slightly different experience to somebody who has been 15% body fat and done a hard cut to under 8% as well. But there's a lot of factors in that. I think it's pretty individual. The short answer is mostly, yes, it probably is a little bit detrimental, <laughs> but it's it's a long discussion. It depends on a lot of a lot of factors. Yeah, it probably depends a lot on like your set point and, and where yeah. you sit naturally. So a tough one to answer with a yes or no for sure. Um, the next question we have is from, I'm going to butcher this, 
Julio, um, and they ask, when trying to hit fibre targets, does it matter what type of fibre? Um, for this one, I'd say, well, variety is the best. Yeah, like yeah. You'd want, you wouldn't want to just take, say, better fibre and not have any other fibre in your diet. Like, we know that having as much variety in, in your fibre intake is probably what's best for your general health and then for gut health specifically. Yeah, I agree. Like, different types of fibres is probably the first starting point. You want a pretty wide variety. And on top of that, I guess the type of fibre does kind of matter as well in terms of, like, for example, for constipation and stuff like that, of we could course. be looking at, like, psyllium husk and stuff. Like, there's options. So it does matter, but I'd start with variety and a lot of the other stuff seems to fall in place in most cases if you just aim for variety. The next question is a bit of a two-part question. So it comes from Rosie Louise and it's the first part is how long does it take to see muscle growth for beginners, intermediate and advanced? And then the second part is in relation to thinking that you are at maintenance calories for two weeks and then your weight still increases on those calories. So they're very different questions, I reckon. So starting off with the first part, just treating that as an isolated question how long does it take to see muscle growth or like reframing it how much muscle growth would you expect to see in a year under those kind of beginner intermediate advanced categories yeah i think i probably want to preface this with everyone is very individually different like there is so much individual variation in how much muscle somebody get, can gain and how quickly um that it does complicate this question but of course like when you're a beginner and you have low levels of muscle mass you are going to see that muscle gain a lot more quickly. Um, I guess when I'm trying to put weight on on people beginning in this space, I'd probably aim for like that 1 to 1.5 kilos per month, but that's also not all going to be muscle at yeah. the same time and how much percentage muscle to body fat that weight gain is going to be is going to be dependent on genetics, nutrition, recovery, and a bunch of stuff. Yeah, exactly. Like if I was going to chuck numbers on there, I'd chuck some numbers like maybe six to 10 kilos of muscle in the first year, maybe yeah. four to six in the second. And then in the third, it starts getting depressing. <laughs> if you're not taking any drugs or anything like that. Maybe, maybe two to four. And then after that, you're forever chasing the next one to two kilos yes. of muscle gain. Um, and like, obviously like those are just rough numbers. There are people who gain more than that. Yeah. There are some people that are absolute free. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And like they, they also make assumptions that you've got a solid training program. You're incredibly consistent. Your nutrition's good. Your sleep's good. You have low levels of stress. You don't get injured. Like there's a lot of factors that are baked into those numbers as well. Um, but those are some rough numbers. So that's, that's addressing the first part of the question. And like food for thought, that's something to think about. If you're gaining weight at a quicker, quicker rate than that would kind of allow for, you're probably gaining body fat or a decent amount of body fat on top of that. And I also assume that if you say gained that 10 kilos of muscle in a year, you probably also did gain a decent amount of body fat in that process as well. Exactly. Yeah. hundred percent. With the second part of the question though, in relation to thinking that you're eating at maintenance calories for two weeks and then your weight still increases on those calories. So you, you were laughing about this under a different context earlier, but what does that mean to you? Yeah, so I'd say whenever your weight is either increasing or decreasing, you're technically just not at maintenance. Yeah. So if your weight isn't staying the same outside of like general fluctuations, then you're just not at maintenance. So I think where a lot of people get confused is the number that's reality and like the number that MyFitnessPal or a calculator gives them. 
because that is not always accurate. Yeah. Um, and those numbers can be different. Like it's predicted maintenance based yeah. on the formula that they've used and everything like that. That doesn't mean that's going to be 100% accurate. And then there's also your own tracking and assumptions based into that in terms yeah. of even when we're tracking food, we're never going to get it 100% accurate. Um, our exercise, our energy expenditure, those all fluctuate. Like we don't 100% know. But what we do know is that calories are what are controlling what we weigh. If you're eating maintenance calories and you're building muscle, your weight still doesn't increase. Like you're just recomping, you're losing fat and gaining muscle at the same time. Um, you can build muscle in a calorie deficit. You would just be losing weight at the same time that you're building muscle, which would therefore mean you're losing more body fat while gaining that muscle. So basically maintenance calories, if you're in maintenance calories for a significant period of time, you would maintain your body weight on average over that time. So the next question we have is from Ali LB and they ask the Mediterranean diet is recommended for good health, but is high in calories tips. Where would you start with this one? So is recommended for good health. I don't necessarily recommend it to clients specifically looking to improve their health, even though it is one of many options that can work incredibly well. It is a great option. Is it high in calories? Like I do understand where the question is coming from because it's not exactly the most high protein as a percentage style diet. It has a lot of foods that are, say, high in healthy fats and stuff like that. Yeah. But I would question, is it high in calories in terms of compare the average Mediterranean diet to like the standard Western diet. And the standard Western diet is probably higher calorie. I would say so. Yeah. I would definitely say so, especially considering that the Mediterranean diet is predominantly plant-based. Yeah. I think when people hear Mediterranean diet, they definitely do think of all those foods high in healthy fats. Yeah. And they think that create is like the most of what it is. Yeah. But it's actually like that's a small part, a small fundamental part of the diet. But a lot of it is getting in those like low energy dense plant-based foods. So I think it ends up being generally yeah. a little, like slightly lower calorie than what a typical Western yeah, diet yeah. would look like. Yeah, for sure. I don't necessarily see it as high in calories, but then there is the dilemma of like, what if you wanted a higher protein diet? That's part of why I don't necessarily recommend the Mediterranean diet consistently because it's like I typically go higher protein than that diet basically. Um, but yeah, that's how I'd view it. Like, And because it is also like predominantly whole foods as well. That's like, true. Yeah. yeah like it's, it's like standard Western diet, like say in Australia on average, I believe the statistic is somewhere somewhere around at least 30% of our calories on average come from junk foods. Like if that's, or discretionary foods, that includes alcohol and stuff like that. Um, if that 30% is reduced to say below 10%, that's saving a ton of calories to start off with. Yeah, and when people are usually over-consuming calories, it's typically not on the things that are high in healthy fats. It yeah. usually is the processed foods and alcohol yeah. contributing to that. Yeah. So question from... Jack Radford-Smith, shout out Jack. Um, opinion on lab-grown meat. Ethically, do you see this as an option for vegans? I am going to hand over to Leah on that one because I don't have any thoughts whatsoever on that one. So Leah, you're up. I mean, if we're just talking like ethically, I don't know. I feel like some vegans would definitely think it was, well, it's much more ethical than what happens in factory farming. Um, I know there's like an amount of animal testing that goes into lab-grown meat, so Maybe technically it's not vegan still because of the animal testing. Um, but I don't know. I think every vegan would have to make up their own mind on that. Although I see it as a real pro from a just an environmental standpoint. Like if we had everyone, like if we had a really good way to produce 
lab-grown meat that didn't involve all of that factory farming and all that agriculture, that could be great for the environment, just even for non-vegans. Yeah, super interesting topic. Hi. It's a really interesting topic. I'm excited to see where it goes and yeah, where people fall on that debate. Yeah. So the next two questions are very similar, so I'll lump them together. So at Sarah Perrick asks, does bicarb soda increase strength? And at Jordan Atkins asks, do you know of anybody who has tried bicarb soda for their training? So does it increase strength? I mean, I guess it doesn't increase strength. It's more about buffering the, the pH of the blood and therefore not allowing that acidic buildup. So it allows you to train at a higher intensity for longer. Yeah. Like the closest I'd say is like it increases muscular endurance. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Like if you were measuring strength on like something that was like a higher rep set, you might be able to get more reps out. That's true. If you're measuring yeah. strength on like... A one rep max. A one rep max, then it, it wouldn't. Um, in terms of people who, who have tried it out, so you've tried it with one athlete? I've tried it with one athlete yeah. so far. Yeah. Um, did they get... Did it improve their performance? Yeah. Yes. So I like I messaged you straight after they messaged <laughs> me. And I was like, they they got a really good improve. So they're a CrossFit athlete, yeah. I should say. Um, and they trialed it in training. Um, and they said like their their wad was like amazing. They felt so, so good. But after taking the bicarbon before their session, they did actually have some pretty bad diarrhea. Yeah. Um but in saying that, like their what they ended up getting for that from that supplementation was so good that they're willing to try it again. Yeah. So I'd say like it's probably worth it. It just you're gonna have to play around. Like I'm gonna have to play around with that athlete to work out a way that it doesn't cause diarrhea. Yeah. But yeah, so far my testing has been somewhat successful. Yeah, and like I'm playing around with it with some athletes at the moment. I haven't gotten much feedback yet, but I've tried it myself because I'm like I'm not gonna recommend something that seems horrific for people without actually trying it myself. So I did try it myself. I used a relative, like I used the standard dosage on the high end of the standard dosage actually. Um, and I did it just before a leg session where I was doing high rep leg work to failure that I'd been doing for multiple weeks in a row, just to kind of see a difference. And from a GI distress kind of standpoint, I don't usually get symptoms or anything like that. And I didn't really get major symptoms. I just like the closest I can say is I felt a bit unwell. Like I didn't feel good. Yeah. Like I didn't feel great. Um, and that was still enough to, for me to be like, if I'm going to do that again, I might lower the dosage. But part of my thought process in that thinking is that it did actually make a huge difference. So like the big thing, so like I had been doing tempo leg press sets of 20. That's a hella long set when you think about like tempo, tempo leg press sets of 20. So it's, it's a long set, which is why sodium bicarb would be so useful for that. Mm. But like I'd previously been going to failure on that and getting around about 20 reps on the weights that I was using. So obviously more on the first set, dropping off as things would go because it was to failure. Um, I was getting like sets of around 30 while using sodium bicarb. Then went back in the weeks after without sodium bicarbonate and was back again around sets of 20 again. <laughs> like that's like a 50% improvement for an activity that's like perfectly designed for sodium bicarb. Yeah, I wouldn't say I'd recommend it for like other power lifters. No. But in CrossFit, like yeah. especially for competition, I think that's where it probably really shines. Yeah. And that's exactly why I'm probably never going to use it again because it's kind of like <laughs> it doesn't really affect my sports. Like I play basketball and I do powerlifting. Like, yeah. It's not, not really going to matter. But I was like if the moment I decided to have a crack at CrossFit and I was <laughs> – Yeah, I would, I would use it for – like I'd play around with it in training, find that perfect dosage, and then I would use it for events basically because it seems to improve performance significantly enough that like it's worthwhile 
experimenting with. Yeah, just not for the faint-hearted, I reckon. <laughs> yeah, and like as I said, like I, I would consider lower dosages, like just yeah. like just to play around and see if that does help. Um, at Lani Azara asks tips for swapping from tracking to intuitive eating to maintain weight loss achieved from tracking. So. I'll let you start on that one. You've got some notes written mm, down. I've so. got some notes. Yeah. yeah, I feel like I've written about this a couple of times, so I'm going to try to be as succinct as possible here. But there's a few things I definitely recommend when someone's transitioning from tracking to more intuitive eating to maintain the weight loss. Um, so the first thing is definitely mindful eating. Like it's such we've we've talked about that so many times. Yeah. And it's a boring one, but if we're talking about maintaining weight loss in the long term whilst not tracking calories, I think it makes a lot of sense yeah. to start there. Um, and just generally getting back in touch with your hunger and satiety cues, because if you've been dieting for a long time, well, I guess firstly, I'd say if you've been dieting for a long time, it makes sense to track for a while at maintenance post diet yeah. to, to like allow for time to just regulate those, those hunger cues and hunger hormones. But after that, I still think because you've ignored your hunger cues for such a long period of time, it makes sense to actively go and just kind of try to gauge yeah. hunger and satiety um, and just get back in touch with it. Yeah, I agree with everything there. I also have another like, I suppose you could call it like a terminology thing, but some terminology I like as another potential option is what's called informed eating. So it's not quite intuitive eating. Like intuitive eating is really listening to all your cues and acting on those cues to a certain degree. Like when you get hungry, you eat, all those kind of things. I think that's a really good thing. Um, another option arguably could be informed eating where it's like you you still take a lot of the skills you learnt from tracking, a lot of nutrition knowledge, all those kind of things. But you could say it's not truly intuitive eating because at times you might ignore your hunger cues or in times you might eat when you're not hungry and stuff like that as well. So like, for example, like what if you had quite a low calorie day that was lower than you intended but you still thought hey maybe i'll eat now because it might make me feel better the next day or something like that that's probably a bit of a bad example but there's a lot of other things like for example what if somebody is trying to gain muscle mass and they're not tracking they might eat when they're not hungry to facilitate that um vice versa if somebody was trying to maintain weight loss and if they were truly listening to hunger and fullness cues and stuff like that, but their weight was increasing, maybe they could eat 20% less, be 20% hungrier or whatever it is and kind of make adjustments based on that. It's not true intuitive eating, but it is an option that you could go with. That's a really good point because I think the big thing with intuitive eating is that it's not a tool to manage your weight. So you can intuitively eat and gain weight if that's yeah. what your body yeah. guess, feels like it needs to do. So I think, yeah, informed eating makes a lot more sense. I like that terminology. Yeah. I think I'm stealing it from Shannon Beer or someone else, but like I, I've never heard great. it before, but yeah, I, I like I it. I've yeah. not heard it until now. So I really like that because I'd also recommend like intuitive eating is like, well, if you feel like a donut, eat a donut. Yeah. Um, but, you know, if I ate a donut every time I felt like one, I'd probably have a little bit of a hard time managing yeah. weight loss yeah. or managing my weight post weight loss um, or post cut. So I'd also say like, having well-balanced meals, eating regularly throughout yeah. the day and using all those little tools we often talk about as part of it as well. Yeah, it's like a combination of yeah. both of them. Um, so the next question from LiveChan09 is, when women get their period, how to combat fatigue for exercise and maintaining diet 
addictive cravings. I'll start on that one um, and then, then we'll go with you. So I, I don't know where I want to start because it's a very, very long topic. Like I suppose I'll start with some background stuff where there's like two kind of extremes. Like one extreme is um, the suck it up approach, which is like not the one I want to go with, but like it's something to think about where it's just like it's, it's going to be harder to a certain degree. Maybe you stick to the exact same plan. Maybe you train the, try and train the exact same way. Maybe you try and eat the exact same way. That's obviously very unappealing for a lot of reasons as well under certain circumstances. And, and I think risky for a dude to come out and say, like, I can understand yeah. why you wouldn't want to take that risk. No. <laughs> and then the other, other approach um, is an interesting one. Like, there's the other extreme, I'm stealing this from Dr. Stacey Sims, and, like, she talks about certain things like the week before the period, typically there is an increase in energy expenditure of about 300, or I think it's 100 to 300 calories, or it's 300 to 500. I think it's 300 to 500 calories she kind of talks about. It's actually really hard for us to measure that. Like we can't actually see it that clearly, but like if we're trusting the judgment there, so 300 to 500 calories is is an increase anywhere. Sorry, no, I've got it wrong. It is an increase of 100 to 300 calories. I was going to say 300 to 500 sounds like a lot, but I don't know the facts. So yeah, so, so it's 100 to 300 calories. But the 300 to 500 calorie number is the number that most females eat during that week. Like they eat 300 to 500 calories more than usual on average. Um, Sharing our experiences, like from what I've seen with clients, some people seem to barely notice a change in their appetite and cravings and some people a thousand calories extra is like what I see. (laughs) Yeah. And I think like it definitely depends on that woman's person like that person's personal experience with having a menstrual cycle everyone experiences it differently pain's different fatigue is different but also i think people's i don't know just general reaction to their period is different some people do like i know a lot of the time i feel very sorry for myself but some people just get on with it yeah i think it's just your your personal reaction to that week as well So I think you need to take an approach that suits you. So for a lot of my clients, we do have a bit more of an allowance for extra food on that week. And then for a lot of my other clients, they're good to just crack on like it's any other week. Yeah, exactly. And like if we trust the judgment of the 100 to 300 calorie increase kind of thing and we go with the average of 300 to 500 calorie kind of thing, on average, we could make the assumption it's like, okay, well, maybe we just add 300 calories as an allowance for that week. But then I think it's obviously worth taking that next step that you just kind of said, where it's like, what if somebody just still crushes it while they're like, what if they don't need that and they, they stick to the plan or whatever? Like we, we wouldn't need to change anything. It's overcomplicating things by changing things to a certain degree or unnecessary to make those changes. What if somebody really did struggle around the time of the period and stuff like that? maybe we add a little bit more. Like maybe we go all the way back up to maintenance or maybe even a small surplus or something like that for the one week because it's one week of the month. Like you can still make progress over the month. Um, And what if that person was normally eating 1,000 calories extra and maybe this means they eat five? Like there's so, so many factors to consider. But my general idea is maybe we can just increase calories a little bit for that, for some, and for others, we don't even need to overthink it basically. We'll, We'll jump straight to the last question now just due to time. So we'll go... Power of Love asks, is creatine only beneficial for those who lift weights? It's a pretty short answer, hey? <laughs> no, I think creatine's good for, for most people. Yeah. Definitely all athletes of all kinds, in my opinion, um, would usually benefit from creatine. I think anyone who is plant-based or predominantly eating plants can benefit from creatine, even when they're not an athlete. Um, yeah, I love creatine for everyone. Yeah, creatine for everyone. Like, yeah. it like delays Alzheimer's or reduces yep. the risk of Alzheimer's. P- 
people get less headaches on creatine. That's another fun fact. Like there's just so many benefits to it. Um, it's incredibly rare for people to get enough through their diet because it is like the equivalent of one kilo of red meat per day. So it's like most people aren't going to be doing that. Um, I, I always say this though, that if I stopped lifting weights, I probably wouldn't take creatine. But that doesn't mean it wouldn't be beneficial. It would still be beneficial. It's just there's a lot of could be beneficial supplements that I also wouldn't take because like this. That's true. Yeah, <laughs> like it's just that's just a personal preference thing. But it's like, like I I'm not overly fussed about like the Alzheimer's things. I'm not like I'm not going to go out of my way to do something every day in a bit to try to like. That's how I think it's through. So like I say that being like it's beneficial for pretty much everybody, but that doesn't mean you need to do it basically. This has been episode 30 of the Ideal Nutrition Podcast. Thank you for listening.